Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, in a rental crisis, why are short-term Airbnb listings still flooding the Vancouver market? Plus, this week, Vancouver Council looks to get rid of single-family residential zoning rules. What will the blue bloods of Point Grey think? And over 200 U.S. school boards have joined forces to sue social media companies, arguing apps are causing disciplinary problems and mental health issues. We speak to the lawyer leading the fight. And range anxiety. Why is the supply of unsold electric vehicles on dealer lots grown by 350%? this year. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Let's talk about Airbnb. There's no doubt we are in a tight rental market. Rents in Vancouver are up 17% in just over a year, averaging about $2,800 per month for a one-bedroom apartment. Now, it's a reminder we're in the middle of a housing crisis, so why then are Airbnb listings still flooding the Vancouver market? While many are licensed, many still remain unchecked and are illegal, making it difficult to find housing for locals. While our next guest is working with Vancouver City staff to figure out how many illegal short-term rentals are actually operating in the city. Lenny Zhao is an ABC City Councillor and he joins us now. Lenny, thank you for speaking to us today. Yeah, thank you, Jess. Thanks for having me. Uh, how serious of an issue is Airbnb uh, at this particular point in the rental market? Well, I think it is a very serious problem because I think, uh, as everyone knows, we are under a housing crisis. So many people, they are struggling to find a housing space in Vancouver. But they are trying to take advantage of our system, making with making some illegal money. So I think it is very serious. And it is on my... So I'm going to you know work with uh, all the community leaders, uh, the short-term rental platform, the city staff, as well as the elected officials from the provincial government and the municipal government to try to you know, solve this issue for a long-term solution. Now, recently I was reading there's just over 4,000 active listings for short-term rentals in Vancouver. What are the rules around yeah. Airbnb right now in the city? Oh, there are many rules, actually. There's a, a very uh, strict bylaws regarding the short-term rental. What the most important thing is you have to be, you know, uh, short-term rental for your principal residence. So if you do not live there, that's not considered as a principal residence. So that, that is considered as illegal short-term rental. So why are we seeing so many listings? Is it just a, a lack of enforcement? Well, lack of enforcement as well as really, it is the fact that uh, we need more hotel space in Vancouver. And Vancouver is a very popular that so many people coming here and uh, they, could, they, could, they couldn't find any hotel space. So short-term rental is their option. So there's a huge demand over there. So that's why I want to be very clear. We need to support short-term rental. In fact, we need to support more because, as we all know, Vancouver is very popular. But we, we are only talking about illegal short-term rental here. The illegal short-term rental is not acceptable in the city of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So what is the city planning to do about it? Well, I've been having different conversations with uh, city staff. So I understand there are eight FTEs uh, staff members in the enforcement department. So, you, you know, they told me that uh, they have a very uh, robust tools to, you know, uh, cross-reference with the information from the city system as well as the uh, RBNB's uh, website. So I'm meeting with them this week. I, I believe it's Thursday. So to understand more about uh, this uh, uh, enforcement effort, I think uh, with my 10 years experience in analytics, so I really want to hope to you know help with our team to build a more robust process so we can you know take proactive action 
for those illegal short-term rental listings. Have you been given any indication as to what the provincial government uh, will be doing? My understanding is that they're uh, actively developing legislation to deal with the short-term rental issue, and they plan to introduce it uh, in Victoria uh, in the fall. Yeah, so that's a very good question. So, you know, I, I keep hearing that the provincial government is going to enhance the legislation, but I haven't heard anything in details yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to continue to push very hard with our provincial partners at, uh, at a different platform at uh, UBCM in the, in, in the fall to see if we can work together to make the, our legislation, um, you know, better for enhance our legislation. And also, you know, there's uh, really something we need support from the, from the provincial government, as we all know. Uh, so, you know, we charge $1,000 per violation uh, for the illegal short-term rental. That is the maximum we can do as a municipality. So $1,000, basically the illegal short-term renter uh, operators, they can make up the money in, I don't know, two or three days. So the cost for being a le- illegal uh, uh, you know, operators is too low. But that's nothing we can do. We have to rely on the... Uh, provincial government to have a better legislation. Uh, is Airbnb a company that uh, is sympathetic or good to work with? And what I mean by that, a lot of tech companies always say that they're concerned about whatever impact they're mm-hmm. having. Uh, but generally, mm-hmm. uh, they're not based here. They're based in the U.S. Um, they're based around That's the world, right. right? But they had offices in here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are just words at the end of the day. Are they a company mm-hmm. you can work with that they're sympathetic? Or are they, uh, are they a company that providing giving you mostly lip service to their concern? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. You know, I had a very positive meeting with uh, representatives from Airbnb last week. So they actually shows very good attitude of collaborating with the uh, city of Vancouver. In fact, they are the only platform having this uh, compliance agreement with the city of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So they are waiting to do more data sharing, information sharing with city of Vancouver. So they are exploring that option. But also, I want to be very clear. So we have to strike the balance here. So if we give too much pressure to Airbnb, this only platform, that will lead other non-compliant operators to shift to other short-term rental platforms, which will defeating the purpose of our effort, right? So it doesn't help. Mm-hmm. So that's why you know, we need to support from the provincial government. For us, we have a voluntary agreement with Airbnb, but not other program, but as a municipality, we have no authority to do that for, to do that for every single platform. So again, the provincial, the leadership from the provincial government is really important. Um, I'm just trying to wrap my head around sort of the practically how this is done. Let's say I owned a condominium mm-hmm. in, in Olympic Village, and I charge, yeah. um, I can make $2,600 per month in a one-bedroom rental. If I were mm-hmm. to rent that out to an Airbnb uh, middleman, he pays me, and you know, let's say I, I, I would rent mine out for $2,600 a month, he rents my facility and say, I'll give you $3,200 a month for the one bedroom, knowing full well he can make $4,500 a month renting the space out. So he makes a bit of a profit. And he could have two or three condos that he does this in, right? Is Mm -hmm. that legal? Mm -hmm. Can somebody do that right now? Well, again, if it is aligned with the the bylaws, the short-term rental bylaws, which allow you to become, uh, to be a, a principal resident, it is okay. But uh, if it is not a principal residence, meaning that um, some of the owners, they are using their investment unit to do the short-term rental, of course, that's not legal. Mm-hmm. So that's something under so, the radar right now. Because what I was hearing is basically you would rent it out to an individual who then has an Airbnb business, 
and their name may be on the lease, but they're just renting it out on, on Airbnb and it would have two or three or four condos they're renting out and they would just have a constant mm-hmm. business and paying people a little bit more than they would make, let's say, having long-term renters. Uh, I mean, I, my understanding is that is a lot more common than people think. Yeah, I, that's what I heard as well. So that's more why in some very popular uh, spot for short-term rental, I saw a huge percentage of the illegal short-term rental units. Just to give you one idea, I don't want to mention the specific location. So there was uh, one strata council I managed, uh, I think, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, there are 233 units in one uh, in one strata building, but there are more than 30 illegal short-term rental. You know, the the percentage is more than 10 percent. That's pretty significant, and that's not acceptable under a housing crisis. You know, again, so the residence housing in Vancouver, that's the most important. So that's something I try to work with uh, different uh, stakeholders mm-hmm. to enhance our legislation and enforcement. Between local and, and the B.C. government, so the B- Vancouver Council and mm-hmm. the B.C. government, you think we'll have some sort of viable solution by the fall then? Well, I hope so. I mean, I've been pushing really hard. I've been talking with uh, different provincial leaders. I really hope that uh, uh, we can have a more robust legislation. But again, it's up to uh, the provincial government. All I can do is to advocate strongly over and over again. That's what I can do as an elected official for a municipality. Mm-hmm. Lenny, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jess. Thank you so much for the, for the time. Well, today, Vancouver City Council will begin debating the elimination of single-family zoning on land traditionally reserved for single-detached homes. A new change would also mean a developer could build up to six homes on a lot that was originally designed for only a single house. City Council will vote on whether to consider the, this change and hold public hearings soon. Now, many hope increasing density through uh, missing middle housing could create a more diverse, equitable, and sustainable city and hopefully make housing affordable. Now, I don't want to make too much of uh, this move this week, but Vancouver, like many major cities globally, are focusing on moving away from what many have called a relic from the 1950s, the single-family home. Now, before we speak to our next guest, let's pay tribute to the single-family home. At last, the Bryants have all the space they need. Big floor-to-ceiling closets for each member of the family. Large, comfortable bedrooms. Zoned living areas, a feature in the plan of their home, assure convenience and privacy for various family activities. Distinctive architectural details create a lovely setting that enhance the pleasure of entertaining. The Bryants have had opportunity for individual expression in this and other interiors throughout the house, in their selection of such things as wall and floor coverings, and the accent colors of fixtures and appointments. The patio, easily reached through sliding glass doors, provides an outdoor living room, ideal for separate activities. At the center of the family activity area, an efficient kitchen saves countless steps and needless effort in the preparation and serving of meals. From the wide selection of components available, Margaret Bryant planned her kitchen just the way she wanted it, with an abundance of work and cabinet space, countertop cooking units, built-in oven, and other handy and helpful features. The separate dining room is another feature that delights Margaret Bryant in her new home, for it permits her to enjoy her guests while entertaining graciously. This is how American families are living in their new homes. There's a lot wrong uh, with 
with what we just listened to. Never mind uh, the just the conversation on the single family home. Uh, Margaret uh, probably of today would not be happy the way that was presented. But joining me now is Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, planner, and a real estate consultant. Michael, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. It certainly was a different era when we were listening to uh, that description of the single-family home, uh, Michael. First of all, what do you think of the overarching policy that the city is looking at today, debating, and want to move forward with? Uh, what do you think of it overall? Oh, overall, I'm generally very supportive of what the city is proposing. But I don't think people should necessarily say goodbye to the single-family house because they will be permitted. People, if they want to build a single-family house... Uh, they'll be allowed to do that. The only thing is to to discourage this. The city is going to reduce the allowable size a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also important, Jazz, to point out that even right now, on any single-family lot in Vancouver, you can have three different homes. You can have the main home, Mm -hmm. you can have a basement suite, and you can have a a laneway uh, residence. But the basement and the laneway have to be rental. This new proposal is going to allow you to have up to six homes all for sale on one larger lot. Mm-hmm. That, I think, is significant. So let's go through some of this, break it down for a moment. The, the, uh, an original comment you made was the um, maximal, uh, maximum allowable build for a single-family home. So let's say you wanted to build a single-family home and a single-family lot of 33 feet by 122 feet. Uh, the maximum size, to my understanding, will be 2,400 square feet. What do you think of that? Well, I think for some people, that'll be just fine. And uh, again, unlike the uh, yesteryear, people don't necessarily want to have that separate dining room. They'll be happy with one great room with a kitchen, dining, living, all in one large space. So in 2,400 square feet, you can build a pretty nice house. But what is being proposed in theory on, say, a 6,000-square-foot lot, which is a 50-foot-wide lot, you could have six homes averaging around a thousand square feet. So you're not likely going to have that 2,400 square foot house, but you might still have a 1,400 square foot house and a 700 square foot home. Mm-hmm. And so you'll begin to get the variety and that's very much what the city wants to see. Now, uh, in regards to the, 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 the change to the laneway house as well, they can be made bigger? Yes. The, uh, I was just doing some calculations. Um, on a 33-foot lot, you'll be able to build a laneway house of around 1,000 square feet. And on a 50-foot lot, 1,250 square feet. So that's quite a bit larger. In fact, about 50% larger than what you can currently build. And I think that's a good, uh, a good decision. But more importantly, something I've been encouraging for years, these laneway houses could be sold. They don't have to just be rented. Mm-hmm. Now, so, I should clarify, mm-hmm. Jazz, you'll have to pay for the privilege of building these extra homes, and we can talk about that in a minute. It's yeah, not all free. Yeah, exa- it never is. So right now, laneway houses can be uh, can be between 650 square feet to 900 square feet. So these are bigger, which would, you know, would be easier for a family to live in. And in the case of a house, just a single family house, uh, the maximum will be 2,400 square feet. And to my understanding, the maximum prior to that uh, was 3,200 square feet for that 
33 foot by 122 foot foot lot. Um, in regards to the six um, units, up to six units you can build, does that not take away a family's ability, let's say, purchase a home, tear it down and build a new one, or even a mom and pop developer to be involved in this type of development? It's going to mean people with, you know, companies that are established, um, deeper pockets. Uh, can that actually be done in your mind? I think it can be done. I mean, there are people listening to us right now who built their own home and managed to live through it without getting divorced, although a few people did get divorced. Building a house can be stressful. Uh, building a small little development like this with four, five, or six homes mm-hmm. can probably be even more complex. But I think we'll see more and more builders gearing up to work with homeowners who want to do this. And we'll also, of course, see a lot of developers simply buying lots with rundown houses, knocking down the house, and putting up five or six houses. And if somebody wants to know what that might look like, just go over to the corner of 33rd and Larch on the west side of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. There's a little development that's been done right there in a larger corner lot with about six units. And it's, it's quite interesting. You know, it's not for everybody. You don't have the privacy you would normally have. But it is a housing choice that's not generally currently available in Vancouver. So one thing we haven't uh, or that hasn't been discussed here, uh, Michael, is what about parking? Uh, What about just uh, sewage and pipes that have to be brought in? I mean, uh, is this feasible, first of all, in the context of uh, neighbors neighborhoods accepting this knowing full well there's going to be a lot more cars in the neighborhood uh just the sewage piping that has to be brought in to deal with all these issues it's still in your mind feasible then well every time you and i have discussed this idea i know callers have phoned up (laughs) afterwards and say hey this guy geller what the heck is he talking about the sewers they won't be able to accommodate this in the report that's going to council today, and there'll be people will be able to watch this. Uh, you can see they just go online and watch council meetings, and they haven't started yet. They do address the fact that the sewers are getting old, they're near capacity, and something will have to be done. Now, what they are proposing is that people will have to det- have detention tanks on their property to collect rainwater and so forth. Now, I've done this. And it does add to the cost, and it is a complication. And I personally won't pretend to know whether this in itself is going to be sufficient. But the other issue, which you've identified, Jazz, is, to my mind, a real issue. I have for years been saying cities should get rid of their minimum requirements for parking and just say we'll have maximum requirements. Well, right now, the city is saying, as proposed, and I think this is going to be very controversial, Mm -hmm. you don't have to provide any parking for six homes. You don't have to have one off-street parking space. And that, I think, really is going to be very challenging because in many of the neighborhoods, and I drove around last night, many single-family neighborhoods, already there's quite a few cars parked on the streets Mm -hmm. because people are using their garages for storage <laughs> or offices. So uh, this one I, I worry about. Now, in some neighborhoods, it won't be a problem. Uh, but more and more, not everybody is going to want to live in one of these homes without a car. And uh, parking on the street is customary. Uh, I grew up in Toronto. A lot of people parked on the street there. 
But that is one issue that I think uh, is going to uh, is going to create a lot of debate. Um, the other issue here, and you, you brought this up earlier, is just with the laneway houses, is they can be bigger. Uh, what's the cost of building a laneway house, number one? My second question to you is, uh, is just, you know, we're talking about six units or four units going from single family to, to multiple units and everything else that, that, uh, that comes with it. Do you have any faith in approvals occurring any faster? I mean, it's already slow for a single-family home to be replaced by a single-family home. How are we planning to, to make the approvals faster for a four-unit or six-unit? Well, I did send a note to the director of planning today because I did see knows that I'm having some difficulties right now uh, on behalf of a client who's waiting to get some approvals and being told he may have to wait another three months to go to boards of variance and so forth. I don't want to discuss that, but there's no doubt this is going to be absolutely critical. We're going to have to change the whole approach of the plan checkers and the planners to approval and just become much more relaxed about it. And if that happens, then this could work. But if the city is going to start judging every unit the way they have been in the past, it won't work. Now, the one thing that Ken Sim and the ABC Council, I think it's genuinely committed to, is speeding things up. It's not happening yet, not at all. But there's so much in this proposal going to council today, uh, Jazz, including taking eight or nine different single-family zones, each with its own slightly different regulations, and saying, let's just combine them all into one zone. So that is a giant step forward, right? Because right now, in some of these zones, you have to have a pitched roof. In some of them, you mustn't have a flat roof. In others, you know, they're going to get rid of that. And I think that will make it easier. But the reality is they're going to have to change the way we review these applications and, uh, and just streamline things. And, I mean, I remember a lady who came up from San Francisco. She started a movement called Yimby. Yes, in my backyard. And one of the things she said is, you know, in San Francisco and places like Vancouver, you go through these incredibly complex approval processes, and yet at the end of the day, half the housing looks great and half of it looks awful. (laughs) (laughs) And I think she's right. So, you know, let's just relax about it a bit. But, you know, there's the potential here for the planners to sort of over review and over-regulate, and if they start to do that with five or six homes on a lot, it just won't happen. And I think the city is committed to trying to make this happen. Michael, thank you for your time today. It's always a pleasure, Jess. The number of school districts in the United States suing social media companies for allegedly harming children is multiplying quickly. The Wall Street Journal reported this week that nearly 200 school districts so far have joined litigation against the parent companies of Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat, and YouTube. The lawsuits come as part of a growing movement to childproof the Internet. Uh, in Congress and in states across the country in the U.S., lawmakers are proposing measures to make websites verify visitor ages and block minors from having accounts. But the school district lawsuits represent a novel strategy in the war on social media. Joining me now is one of the lawyers leading the way in challenging large tech companies over alleged harm to children. His name is William Shinoff. He's a lawyer with France Law Group in San Diego, California, and he joins us now. Mr. Shinoff, thank you for joining us today. 
Of course, thank you. Uh, out of curiosity, because you talk to so many school districts uh, in and around uh, the U.S., what kind of uh, stories are you hearing from school boards? What are they seeing when they deal with children? Yeah, I mean, what I'm what I'm hearing from school districts across the country is that this has become a daily issue on elementary, middle school, and high school campuses. Um, whether it be social and emotional issues they're dealing with, whether it's discipline, threats to campus, there's there's a variety of issues, and it's it's changed. Uh, you know, the the issues students have to deal with don't stay on campus anymore. They're coming to them. It's on their phone. They're dealing with harassment 24-7, and that spills onto the campus, and districts spend more, children spend more time on campus than they do at home a lot of the year, and so these districts take the the laboring or of trying to deal with it. So the, the mental health, though, is a, is a huge issue they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, there's a Section 230 law, which was passed by Congress in 1996, and basically says that Internet companies generally aren't liable for third-party content on their sites. Uh, and in this case, uh, the these companies, the large tech companies, are protected. Uh, uh, what do you say to that argument that these these companies are protected? They shouldn't be held liable for what actually occurs. Yeah, I would say for sure that, that that act was created. It was created to help the Internet flourish. Uh, but what Congress did not expect was social media companies. They did not exist when this was created. And I believe that these companies have used that as a shield to shield themselves from liability for a long time at this point. Uh, but what we're alleging in these cases is not about content. Uh, but what it is about is that they've created a def- defective, harmful product, mm-hmm. that their algorithm has been created in a way to keep especially children on these platforms as much as possible. And our own U.S. Surgeon General just a few months ago said that as a result of these companies' conduct and their product, uh, we have a youth mental health crisis. So whether it be, we're not focused on content. We're focused on the product and that the product needs to be safer for children. And we're slowly seeing legislation move in the right direction. Uh, but hopefully through this court action and through injunctive relief, we'll be able to go and force these companies to make changes they need to do. Now, there are 13,000 school districts in the U.S., and as I was mentioning, uh, uh, nearly 200 school districts so far have joined uh, in, the, in regards to this litigation. Uh, you've talked to, uh, from, what I, from what I've been reading, is well over 100 school boards yourself, or attended 100 board meetings, sorry, and uh, you are, uh, could potentially be representing even more school districts in, in, in lawsuits? Yes. Um, I, I, I did represent, uh, we just wrapped up the jewel vaping litigation, mm-hmm. um, and, and I represented a thousand school districts in that case. I currently in the social media litigation represent a little over 500, but at the end of the day, I'm expecting to represent probably somewhere upwards of 2000 school districts in this litigation. Out of 13,000 school districts in the U S that is significant. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I think what we're seeing is that they're, the bipartisan issue of um, the belief that these companies are harm that they are harming children, mm-hmm. and these school boards are are taking the step that they believe is correct to hold these companies accountable and require them to make change and for them to pay 
for the necessary resources these districts need to deal with the children. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you say to arguments that some uh, probably make and have already made that, look, these lawyers come along and they've gone after, you know, companies when it comes to asbestos, they've gone after cigarette companies because they see uh, an opportunity to to win cases and significant compensation for it. You're talking talking about uh, e-cigarettes there, the Jewel Company. What do you say to the argument that some will make against lawyers who are, going out to school districts and convincing them to be part of this litigation and moving forward that, look, lawyers are just moving on from other industries and now see an opportunity here to hold big tech companies uh, and, and shake them down? Well, I think you have to understand how these cases work. Um, us attorneys, we bear all the risks. We're not paid hourly fees to work on this case. Mm-hmm. If we lose, we don't get paid. Uh, the districts don't pay anything to be involved. Um, and it's not about opportunity. It's, it's about the fact that what we, we're looking at is there was a whistleblower that came out from these companies that mm-hmm. advised of a harm. These companies still made no change after the whistleblower came forward to Congress. And so, you know, us as attorneys hearing from our clients that they're suffering a harm, it's, we, we go and work for our clients and go and make the necessary change that we believe would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, the responsibility is on these companies to go and do it because if they went and acted as appropriate companies, we wouldn't be having these lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anywhere in the world that you think does it well? I mean, these companies operate globally. Uh, you know, the EU is often viewed as being much more aggressive and demanding mm-hmm. accountability from big tech. Not perfect, mind you, but sometimes a lot faster than the U.S. and Canada as well. Uh, or do you think the U.S. is leading the way here in regards to challenging, particularly these tech companies and when it comes to social media? No, I think the EU is definitely ahead of us all. Um, I, there's been a lot of talk about trying to hold these tech companies accountable in D.C., mm-hmm. uh, but we haven't seen anything move. Uh, just this past year, we've seen a couple states take some pretty drastic measures against these companies. We'll see if they can hold up legally. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think we're, we're very far behind, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, these, these big tech companies are very powerful. They have a lot of money, and, they, you know, the, the money is really pushing a lot of unfortunately, the way politics are moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that that's what we're seeing. Um, and we're seeing it when we're filing these suits about the, the press releases we're getting in response to our lawsuits. So they are very powerful, but I think definitely the EU is way ahead of both the Canada and the United States on dealing with these issues. Mr. Shinoff, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Of course, thank you. We spent a lot of time, of course, talking about electric vehicles on this show, and certainly not all jurisdictions are going to be the same, and BC's generally done well uh, overall in purchasing uh, EV, uh, EV uh, electric vehicles. Now, uh, numbers overall are growing, but there is obviously cause for concern when the latest numbers have come out. And what I mean by that, the supply of unsold EVs on U.S. dealer lots have swelled 350% so far this year to more than 92,000 
100,000 units uh, in June alone. Now, the average new EV costs about $64,000 in the U.S., so that means about $6 billion dollars. Uh, in inventory is sitting there collecting dust. Now, this is all coming out just as Ford announced that it was uh, cutting prices on its Ford F-150 Lightning pickup. There's a $10,000 cut in prices there, U.S. Uh, And Tesla earlier this year cut U.S. prices of its Model Y long-range version uh, by a quarter to about $50,490. And that's U.S. as well. So Toyota, sorry, uh, Ford has cut prices, so has Tesla. What is going on? Joining me now to talk a little bit about all of this is Jeremy Cato, automotive, automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com. Jeremy, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, Jeremy, what is going on here? This type of inventory that I'm looking at is significant. What do you think is happening? Uh, well, there's several things going on. Uh, when you're talking about price cutting, um, Tesla is price cutting to try and crush its uh, growing competition. Um, Tesla's got the lowest production costs uh, and, and marketing sales costs of any automaker in the world because they don't have dealers and they don't have to pay all those kinds of commissions. Mm-hmm. And they want to hold on to their share. And, and, and what I mean by that is um, in the last year alone, we've gone from about 40 EVs uh, models on the market uh, to more than 60 now, according to J.D. Power. So new people are coming in and Tesla uh, you know, it's a tried and true thing in any business. If you want to keep your share, cut prices and hold on to your customers. So that's what Tesla's doing. Ford, uh, of course, uh, can't sell the Lightning because it's too expensive. I mean, if people go to my website, I had a, a, a road test of it a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the one I was driving is $125,000 for Whoa. a pickup truck that you can't really tow a trailer with. Not for any farther than you, you control. You can tow a trailer, but you'll only be able to go about 160 kilometers between charges. And the charge time for that big rig is quite long. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's, you know, it's just too expensive. And that goes to the third point I'd make is that overall with consumers, um, there was new research out from J.D. Power just recently here in Canada, is that two-thirds of car shoppers today are unlikely or very unlikely to even consider an EV. Pricing, infrastructure, range anxiety, charging issues, all those things. And consumers are just saying, no, thank you. I'm not going to spend 50 or 60 or $100,000 on a car that can't do or a truck that can't do everything I need it to do all the time. So let's, uh, let's deal uh, with the... with the. It's <laughs> a lot, eh? It's a lot, but it, but it leads us to some questions here. Let's start with the, with the, just the, the people not wanting to buy EVs. Uh, so the low, what it tells me is the low-hanging fruit is almost gone. The folks that were going to make the transition have made the transition, generally speaking. There may be a few stragglers. Uh, so prices, it would, prices coming down, would, would that change things? Or is this about just EV infrastructure, so more uh, charging stations all over this city and, and across this province? Well, cutting prices would certainly help. I mean, just about the cheapest EV you can buy today in Canada is the Nissan Leaf, and that that starts at about $44,000. Now, you have to factor in, you know, there's government incentives, depending on which province you're in, that can range up to, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. might cut, you know, six or $8,000 off the price of that EV. But that's still, you know, mid, mid-30s for old technology. The Leaf is a very, very old technology uh, EV um, that can do everything you need it to do all the time. And if you want to get a handle on what, uh, what that, I would steer 
uh, NW listeners to a story to today's Globe and Mail by Paul Adams, a retired professor and, uh, and Globe and Mail reporter who writes about living with his Nissan Leaf. And it's a good thing he's retired because he has to spend a lot of time waiting for charging or having anxiety about will there be a charging dock available if I go on a road trip, those kinds of things. So pricing would help, but that would only bring in more of the urban buyer because let's face it, if you live uh, outside of the lower mainland, Metro Toronto or Metro Montreal, living with an EV is going to be extremely difficult as your only car. It could be your second car or your commuter car. But it's almost impossible to live with an EV uh, unless you're a retiree and you have plenty of time to wait for charging to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so cutting cutting prices would help, but that's not the only problem. Infrastructure okay. is at least a, as big a problem. How, how much do you think range anxiety plays a role here? You know, we, we still you can muddle through, and there's lots of places now. Where we're almost on a weekly basis, they're announcing new places to charge. And I would argue that let's say if you're fortunate to have a single family home. Uh, you'd probably put in your own infrastructure as part of the purchase of a vehicle. How much do you think range anxiety still plays a role in regards to hesitancy for, 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 for people? Well, I, I think the range anxiety is, is a piece of the overall charging issue, right? Um, so I think for a lot of buyers, um, the idea that I just can't hop in my vehicle and go someplace, and if I run out of um, energy, I can spend three or five minutes at a gas station and and be on my way. Well, there is no charging dock station out there that will recharge your uh, your EV in three or five minutes. It's not going to happen. And some people are talking about maybe 10 minutes down the line. I know Toyota's working on a system like that. Uh, Ford is working on that. Tesla's working on it. But that, that's not here today. So the charging piece is is a big deal. And, and as well as the range anxiety, can I get there? And you go back to that article I read, uh, referred to as uh, earlier, mm-hmm. Paul Adams was trying to do a road trip uh, just around southern Ontario in the winter, and he was freaking out, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, because it was cold and it was minus 20, and he, so he, but he couldn't run any of the warming characteristics inside his car, the heated steering wheel, the heated seats, <laughs> because cause none of the charging stations were, that his app said that were available when he got there were not available. So this goes to the infrastructure piece, and until... As J.D. Power, in, in its latest research, uh, has pointed out, it, until governments and car makers spend billions of dollars on affordability, reducing uh, the cost of a vehicle, and building infrastructure, Canadians are certainly Canadians who are much more careful with their money than most Americans, just aren't going to go there in big, big numbers. Yet you're right, the low-hanging fruit has all been picked. Uh, final question to you. Uh, I remember I asked you this question a year ago, and I th- it's still the best advice I think I've gotten when it comes to EVs. Uh, would you still recommend people just wait a little bit longer? You've said that uh, uh, J.D. Power and Associates was saying that you know we've gone in about a year or whatever the timeline you were mentioning from 40 potential EV models you could look at. Now we're at 60. Should people still wait and give it a bit more time if they are going to make that plunge? Well, uh, here's what I would tell you. If I were going to buy a new vehicle today, I'd buy a gasoline electric hybrid. There's some terrific ones out there. Um, I just finished testing. There's a video up on my website of the Toyota Prius. And last week, I did a video of the Honda Accord hybrid. These are vehicles in the $40,000 range. And in the Prius case, for example, uh, you're looking at cutting your average fuel bill versus a Camry with all-wheel drive in half. You cut your CO2 emissions in half. 
you, uh, you get terrific range. You get a, something like 800 plus uh, kilometers on a tank of gas, and you've done something to deal with climate change, which is real. Um, but you are not worried about range anxiety. You're not certainly not worried about reliability. Uh, taxi drivers all over Vancouver use Priuses, uh, and I really like that Honda Accord hybrid because it's basically an EV. The, the onboard gas motor is there to charge the battery, not really run the wheels, unless, except only under certain conditions. So I would suggest maybe wait for one more generation and go buy a hybrid, and you'll still be doing something really great for the planet. Well, Jeremy, good advice. Thank you so much. My pleasure. After the most recent incident where a truck hit an overpass, the Ministry of Transportation says uh, you can expect to see higher fines, steeper penalties, longer suspension, and an emphasis on uh, greater driver education. This, of course, uh, is in response to the incident last week where a commercial truck crashed into Highway 17A overpass, uh, bringing traffic to a halt for many, many hours. In fact, during 2022, And up until uh, June of uh, 14th of this year, 19 commercial trucks have crashed into highway overpasses. And most of those, of course, have been in the Lower Mainland. Uh, Last Friday, the mayor of Delta wrote to to the Minister of Transportation, Rob Fleming, asking for a timeline on the reopening of the Highway 17 overpass uh, to southbound traffic. Joining me now is the mayor of Delta, George Harvey. George, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I saw your tweet earlier today in regards to the letter that you did send to the minister. Uh, what's the, uh, right now, in regards to the, 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 the overpass itself and the southbound lane, it's closed right now? Yes, it is, and it's creating a considerable problem both for residents and local businesses and trade goods movements uh, through the corridor, also traffic to the ferry. Uh, in in summary, it's, it's just causing a lot of problems, and it's a mess. And there's been no indication in regards to timeline or uh, or how uh, the ministry plans to move forward? Our staff are working actively with the Ministry of Transportation staff, and I expect a call uh, from our information from uh, Minister Fleming shortly. And uh, he's always been very good at returning uh, requests for information. Uh, my concern is that this these are very old overpasses. I think the date stamp on this, as you probably have seen it many times, is about 1958 at the same time as the tunnel. Mm-hmm. We've had problems here. We've had problems at Highway 10. And we desperately need to have new infrastructure associated with the George Massey Tunnel replacement. Mm-hmm. Without that, it's the corridor isn't going to work. Now is the time to assess this infrastructure and plan for its replacement in time before the new Georgia Massey Tunnel replacement actually opens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, as I travel through that tunnel every single day, I see the uh, Steveston overpass is being worked on now, and I think the date stamp on that one, uh, as a former MLA, was 1959, <laughs> last time I had checked, uh, and that, that that is being built right now. Now, my understanding is that the old overpasses are at one, 4.15 metres, and all the new overpasses that are being built are, be, are built at about 5 metres. Is that is that your understanding? Yeah, interesting you say that because I just had extensive discussions uh, as my role as chair of Metro Vancouver at my Metro Vancouver office with the Road Builders Association. And yes, they confirmed that uh, we need to ensure that, you know, we are living up to what the, the, the commerce is actually loading these trucks to do uh, because it is these trucks are coming in longer, wider and higher. 
and uh, we need to accommodate that under new construction. And we've had, this isn't the first time this has happened, and we've had other situations at the Highway 10, just a short distance down south, and uh, we got to ensure that, you know, we need this new infrastructure. And it's always been my frustration that these, the infrastructure doesn't have a best before date. And no, no, no provincial uh, body or, polit- or political party has really said we need to establish infrastructure replacement at a better before date in order that we can stop these types of distra- uh, disruptions to our economy. Mm-hmm. And I think partially, just uh, as an observer, uh, we have a tendency, I think increasingly over the last decade and 15 years, to politicize infrastructure, whether it be pipelines, whether it be bridges, whether it be roadways, whether it be crosswalks, whatever it may be. We have a tendency to politicize everything now, and it, it makes it that much, uh, much, much harder, never mind just fighting for the dollars that you generally have to do to build some of this infrastructure. So in regards to right now, uh, I drive by that overpass, and, and there's extensive damage there. I mean, I do not know what it takes to repair something like that. But when I look at it, I go, that's going to take some time. It seems to me, certainly for as a layperson, going, uh, that is not something that's going to be fixed anytime soon. Yes, and my concern is, well, there's three lanes in use now. And uh, what our request was through our engineering department to the Ministry of Transportation officials is can we not take one of those three lanes and ensure that it can be used for east to west movement to at least allow some you know movement in that direction? Because again, you look at the trades goods movement is so is so vastly used this overpass and also access to the ferries, access to Austin First Nations, access south. So it's a critical component. But uh, I really you know I'm, I'll be uh, giving uh, Mr. Fleming a call later this week. We have very good relationships insofar as looking at discussions of issues in Delta. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we need to get some temporary uh, measures in place. But it depends on the timeline. If that timeline is extensive, and I could understand that based upon the damage that I've seen, mm-hmm. uh, we need to have some alternatives to at least open it up for, for traffic as much as we can. Yeah. And, and going back to your original comment that you know we, you, you do need to uh, build a new overpass because uh, the, the date stamp is 1958, uh, at this point there has been no talk, right? I mean, they're doing the Steveson overpass uh, and they're in the early process of the eight-lane tunnel, um, but there has been no conversation yet uh, prior to even this accident of, of upgrading or rebuilding that overpass? Well, as far as South of the Fraser is concerned, I've had many conversations with Minister Fleming. We need, as you know, a we desperately need a second exit out of ladder with our growth and the projections and the province requiring us to build more housing. We need a second exit out. And uh, we also need to look at uh, another crossing because the capacity that will be uh, absorbed with regards to the new uh, George Massey tunnel replacement, it'll be vastly consumed based upon the growth that's happening south of the Fraser. We need another crossing. And that's what I'm pushing as chair of Metro and working with the province is that we can't just wait until we get into gridlock. Uh-huh. We need to start planning these things right now. Locations, environmental studies, or whatever is necessary, but we need another crossing of the Fraser River to, to ensure that we can move goods movements and people that are commuting south of the Fraser. Well, just looking to your crystal ball, where would that crossing go? I'm very curious. I would like to know, too. And that's what I say. We've <laughs> got to start looking at that now and ensure that we can do all the planning now and not just wait for in times to where we just get into gridlock. The real crunch here, of course, is with the approval of the Terminal 2 project at mm-hmm. Delta Fork. That's going to bring in double the number of containers, double the number of traffic, increasing rail traffic. But we need to plan and get ahead of that. But that's what politicians don't do, as you know from your experience. 
nobody cares about what's going to happen eight years or 10 years from now. All we care about is within the term of our office, and that's not right. We need to look forward. We need to do things planning differently. So, George, I just want to clarify this once again. So you're saying we need a new new crossing uh, over the Fraser. So besides the Portman, besides the Alex Fraser, besides the new Massey Tunnel, you're saying we need another crossing just to deal with the growth that we are seeing and it is projected over the next four or five years. It's actually the growth that's going to happen. It's happening now. And uh, their existing infrastructure, no matter how much we replace it, no matter how much we try to put additional transportation through buses, etc., it's not going to handle it. We need to plan for the future now. And that's what us politicians are very, you know, we're, we should be looking, not just at what's happening in, in our current term of office. We need to do our prop- jobs properly. Listen to the experts, do some planning, ensure that we can then look at the financial means insofar as how we can plan for those infrastructure improvements. Mm -hmm. But we also need to replace the aging infrastructure on Highway 99 now. And that's another concern is that we need to do it now in association with the George Massey Tunnel Project. I will be traveling back in my role as uh, Chair of Metro and also uh, Mayor of Delta uh, with my fellow colleagues and mayors uh, from the region in September. And we'll be asking again for the federal government to release some infrastructure funds to get those improvements on 99 done now in order that when the George Massey Tunnel opens, those those connections are already done and we'll have a much better project that will open up some improvement. But again, it's only going to be temporary because the growth of the region is always going to be concentrated south of the Fraser and we need to plan for that growth now. Would you still be asking for another crossing if the 10-lane bridge had moved forward? Uh, absolutely. The 10-lane bridge wasn't going to solve it either. We need another crossing. I haven't heard you say that before, George. That's uh, very interesting. I I haven't said it to you personally, but I have said that a lot of times. All right. Well, I'm glad you're saying it's certainly uh, part of the broader conversation. George, thank you for your time as always. Uh, You too. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.